Just look at me, Miss Brown. Keep looking at me. It's like a sudden breeze on a stifling day. Asusa, 30991 is on the telephone. Yes. Yes. Who is it? Hello, and welcome to the Screen Test of Time, the podcast where we watch every movie ever nominated for Best Picture. I'm Susan Araslin. I'm David Dahl. And this week, we are past the halfway point in the 1941 movies on our, what did you call it last week? The Slow March to Maltese Falcon. Yeah. <laughs> With another kind of forgettable Charles Boyer romance, Hold Back the Dawn. Yeah, I wish this movie was better. I have so many things that I, like, want to say right off the bat that we ordinarily do not say right off the bat. Like, I kind of just want to go, like, this movie's a five. Like, just right out the gate. (laughs) Because this movie is... Because this movie is a five. It's totally a five. Right. And if you've been listening for a long time and all you care about is the score, you could probably turn the podcast off now because you know what we mean by that. <laughs> right. And it's also that last week we had this whole philosophical discussion about a movie we were kind of eh on that wasn't a five. A movie both of us had reservations in different ways about, but liked to different degrees. And this movie's just straight up a five. No question. <laughs> and it is also a movie where I think I was so compelled by how boring it was. that's such a strange thing to say because i was compelled by how boring it was to research the making of it and stories around it so the general outline of this film is it's a romance about a romanian gigolo played by charles boyer trying to get into america to get american citizenship on the Mexican side of the U.S.-Mexico border, learning he can sort of do an end run around the immigration system by marrying an American, seducing Olivia de Havilland, playing a schoolteacher who everyone is like, she's the most boring woman on earth. And you're like, she's Olivia de Havilland. What are you doing? Right. And then slowly but surely falling in love with her for real, And, like, regretting what he's done, and then there's a big act three, he's gotta do a thing to prove his love for her, and then they end up together, end of film. And, like, it's kind of, in that way, weirdly bog-standard. It is only when you get into the weird details of this setting and this world that anything interesting starts happening in this movie. Because the romance is just act one, kind of a cad seduces a woman, act two, they fall in love for real, act three, the deception is revealed and he has to prove his now real love. It's a movie you've seen a thousand times. Yeah. And the interesting things about it are, one, this weird framing device where immediately the film starts off with... I think the best way to tell you this story is to tell you the way that it came to us at Paramount Studios, telling you the greatest film ever made, where Charles Boyer's character sneaks onto the Paramount lot through the lot tour and tells the director that he knows somehow about this story of his to try and get $500 that he can give to Olivia de Havilland's character 
to try and make up for everything he's done for her because she's gotten into a car accident so that there can be a thing in Act 3 that he can use as a dramatic rallying moment to stop being a piece of shit. (laughs) What's really annoying about the framing device for me, maybe not annoying, the thing that's very cliched about the framing device for me is that it threads his voice as the narrator of the story throughout the film. So that there are points where the movie doesn't have to actually show you anything Mm -hmm. because Charles Boyer as narrator telling his own story that we see him in can just tell us. Can I tell you the other thing that irritates the shit out of me about the framing device? Of course, please. Well, there's actually two layers. One layer is it means that the most interesting part of this movie which is the other people in this Mexican town waiting to gain entry to the United States, mm-hmm. doesn't make any fucking sense in this movie because he would have no way of knowing any of that. Like, he has shown no interest in any of those characters. It makes no sense for him to be narrating any of those stories, but they are significantly more interesting than his own story. <laughs> So, like, I'm glad the movie spends time on them, but every time the movie spends time on them, there's this nagging thing in the back of my head of, like, it doesn't make any sense we're watching this. This isn't part of his story. Why is this happening right now? And it ruins otherwise actually kind of compelling narratives. The other wild thing about it is the thing where the framing device presents itself as being proof of how this is all based on a true story and that is why it's all compelling and i did some research on this and it's not on the wikipedia page and i had to go to a second page of google results which i think means i can speak at an academic conference about this but i did eventually track this down hold back the dawn is as a movie based on a novel called hold back the dawn that novel is in fact based on a true story (laughs) And the true story is of the wife's point of view getting married to a Mexican prize fighter that, for vaguely noble reasons, has to get into the United States and seduces her to marry him and then really falls in love with her. What were the vaguely noble reasons? I don't actually fully understand them because I can't anywhere get a full plot outline of the novel. What I can get is a story about the husband of Ketty Frings, the writer of the novel, threatening to sue Paramount Pictures because they changed him from a Nobel Prize fighter into a fucking cad of a European gigolo. (laughs) But that means, even though that's a pretty big liberty to take, the core narrative of two people who their initial courtship is about trying to circumvent the U.S. immigration system and then they actually fall in love is an actual real true life story. However, in the most Hollywood thing ever, the framing device about how true the whole thing is, is absolute bullshit and based on nothing. Yeah, I mean, the story is completely different if you frame it that way. Right. His whole reason for wanting to get into the US is essentially so that they can, well, they, his ex-slash-current-ish girlfriend can become performers in New York City. Yeah. And, like, apparently that entire plotline is, in the other kind of wild thing about this, 
invented by Billy Wilder, who wrote the film version. One of four people who wrote it, but was apparently the real creative force around it, and, like, clashed with the director and clashed with Charles Boyer about this story, because Billy Wilder actually did, for a time, try to escape everything going on in the 30s (laughs) in Europe by going through Mexico to get into the United States and had to wait in Mexico for a really long time before getting into the U.S. This explains the random German couple whose story seems so much more compelling than the actual story of this film. So, like, all of those stories, the random German couple, the guy who, like, it turns out is, like, an honorary American citizen, the whole community of people in this Mexican town is all added in by Billy Wilder and seems to be the movie he actually wanted to be making instead of this thing. And, like, the fact that they made Charles Boyer's character such a cad seems to be them trying to do this winking thing about the romance genre of, like, she's gonna fall in love with him even though he's an absolute piece of shit, because we all know that's how these work. (laughs) It doesn't really play that way, and it creates this weird framing device that is about him going and running into Paramount Studios, and it's weirdly meta, and all the meta-ness of it is completely made up. They just found a novel they liked and used it to adapt a screenplay. Right. And it is irritating. (laughs) Because it sounds like the original true story was more compelling than this, and that the movie they wanted to make that isn't quite the novel and doesn't really fit with the novel is more compelling than this. And instead, they just made this, like, bizarre compromise thing that's trying to wink at being the novel while telling this story about what it's like to try and immigrate into the United States that just doesn't really fit, and you have to, like, shove it in around the romance movie. Yeah. Should we, I guess, flesh out the rest of the plot? Or do you- I mean, I kind of feel like we just told it. Just Gigolo wants to move to the U.S., seduces school teacher, and then succeeds, eventually. The thing where they come together in Act 2 is a shitty sequence where he tries to drive away from an immigration officer that suspects he's marrying for citizenship into a good, okay sequence where they go to this small Mexican town and observe rituals and the quotidian aspects of being married and being a couple and fall deeper in love with each other. It's okay. It's fine. As a way to spend 20 minutes of this movie, it's definitely not the worst 20 minutes of this movie. I actually like the little parts of, look, we're in random parts of small town Mexico, just as set pieces. I liked that too. I also was thinking about, because of the brief part in Act 3, where they go over the border and are driving around Southern California, how much living in L.A., There's this weird thing where Hollywood used to feel more comfortable with telling you about the rest of California, and then it was like, oh, no, 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 that's too solipsistic. We have to stop setting all this shit in California, but it's still obsessed with itself enough to tell stories about Hollywood constantly, so it just means everything outside of L.A. has disappeared. Yeah, it actually ended up becoming more (laughs) solipsistic. Right. This is like the fifth movie we've watched that's at least vaguely concerned with, like, Bakersfield. (laughs) With, like, 
the geography of California between LA and the Mexican border, which I know Bakersfield is in the other direction of that, but like cares about small towns outside of LA in a way that I feel like I don't know, Ladybird. That's the only thing I can think of in the past 10 years that acknowledges the LA suburbs exist. Uh, Weeds, but it's not a movie. Yeah. And even that has that, like, this is every suburb to it, you know? It only really feels California toward the end when they build the tunnel. I was going to say, like, it only really feels like California when they move to New York. (laughs) It's only then in retrospect that you're like, oh, they were in California. Actually, when I say the end, I mean when I stopped watching Weeds. So never mind. (laughs) Fair enough. But there's just this period where she's, like, driving past a road sign that mentions a couple of small towns on the outskirts of L.A. Right, yeah. Grapes of Wrath is an obvious one. San Francisco takes place in other parts of California, but not Southern California. Yeah. We've had a few movies, actually, that take place in Northern California, because Alexander's Ragtime Band takes place in San Francisco. And there's not a lot of movies anymore that take place in Northern California. When they do, they're very much, like, just in San Francisco. They're about Silicon Valley, let's be real. Yeah. Really, they're about doing (laughs) establishing shots of the San Francisco skyline, and then going, I think it's basically LA, I don't know, I've been up there two or three times, (laughs) and then being wrong. I don't know, I guess I just found it interesting to watch a brief period where, like, they cared about some part of Southern California besides L.A. Oh, I remember. Mm, I remember what it was because it wasn't specifically Southern California. It was when we watched the movie about Pancho Villa. It was that whole sequence of him being in like West Texas. It feels in a way like 40s movies care about sub regions of states more than caring about doing the big establishing shot of the skyline and going, we are in San Francisco now. You are allowed to be in in in-between places a lot more in 30s and 40s movies, whereas now it's like, well, we got to get the, like, Chicago audience so that they don't think we just make L.A. movies. So just set the whole thing in Chicago. And actually shoot it in Toronto. Or anywhere in New England or the Midwest, they shoot in Vancouver. <laughs> yeah. The thing I find fascinating about the sequence where she's driving through Southern California is that sense that we haven't yet started editing out all the in-between places of, like, big cities, that you are allowed to just be kind of nowhere but adjacent to a big city. Now, if you're nowhere, you're self-consciously, like, the suburbs, it's all the same, it's just one big block of houses. Instead of having some sort of regional character to the, like, in-between cities of the U.S. Yeah, I mean, from watching film and television before I had ever gone to L.A., I basically just thought that you drove out of L.A. and into Mexico. Yeah. And that's not the case at all. There's a lot of space before you get to the border. For sure. I've driven down to San Diego and gone, boy, you drive for a long time to get to San Diego. How close are we to Mexico? Not that close still some time to go huh boy whereas in movies it's like oh let's go to Tijuana for the weekend 30 minutes later you know what fucked me up about this real bad 
was Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Totally! First of all, the location of Sunnydale is absolutely fucking Calvin Ball. But even given that, the location of Sunnydale versus LA versus getting to anything in all of California... There's that one weird sequence toward the end of season two where Cordelia goes and tries to collect a bill from that family whose kid had an eyeball in the back of their head, where she actually complains about having to drive across Los Angeles. And I remember as a kid going, that's the first time I think they've ever acknowledged that human beings take time to get to a location in the Buffyverse. (laughs) That like Cordelia would complain about LA traffic is like, Oh, right. This takes place in physical space. (laughs) Yep. Uh, Anyway, I'm a huge nerd. That totally was worth our time. I think it was totally worth our time. (laughs) And it's indicative of how little we actually have to say about this film. Oh, for sure. Yeah. I... 41 has been a a weirdly short episode heavy year. I think it is because Citizen Kane just so thoroughly kicked the bar. It is so weird to go from watching Citizen Kane to watching like just another studio movie, you know? Yeah, that's true. I would have killed for a hold back the dawn and like the dregs of 37, 38, you know? Oh, yeah. Now it's like I've seen this fucking movie five times. This is just Charles Boyer and Olivia de Havilland fall in love even though they shouldn't because he sucks. And he doesn't even play the sucking part that well, to be honest. Uh, Yeah. He's just a little bit too sweet and charming. Not even sweet, just inoffensive. Yeah, really Paulette Godard does all the work of him being a heel. She is a good villain. Yeah, she does all the work of making him a heel by being such a fucking heel. That even though she's Paulette Goddard, you're like, oh, you've got to be a real jerk to be with her. <laughs> yeah. She's on like her third American husband, but or I guess the new husband is an American, but she's on her third husband in three years or something by the end of the movie. Yeah. Which, you know, whatever. I'm not going to fault anybody for that, but her reasons are not that she loves any of them. She's just trying to get citizenship. And is absolutely mercenary about it. Does not give a shit about anyone at all. In fact, the guy that she married initially to get into the U.S. was apparently a jockey who was five, two, or three, she says. And 30 minutes after getting into the country, takes him to court and files for divorce. She's a jerk. And like... I think there is really something to Paulette Goddard as a performer that she adds some layer of humanity to her, but mostly she is just there as like this heat sink for what an asshole by rights Charles Boyer ought to be. (laughs) Because if you look too hard at that, you're like, well, you don't get to end up with Olivia de Havilland. And so instead, it offshores a lot of his assholery to a woman so that he can remain relatively spotless. There's a lot of this movie that felt like Hayes Code, the film, like making it very clear that they, despite being married, were not going to have sex because he intended to dump her as soon as he got into the U.S., which is such a weird, specific choice with a whole scene around it. Yeah, they also, both Paulette Goddard and Charles Boyer, are both like, 
Yeah, we traveled around Europe and tried to find rich people and seduced them. But I really need you to know that we took all their money and left before we ever fucked. So, like, don't even worry about it. (laughs) And also, she's married and I'm married and we intend to be together, but nothing is happening while we're still married. Which, what? Yeah. And also then, why did you bother to make him such a jerk? Because apparently in the true story, he wasn't. So, like, why even jump through all these hoops? It kind of seems like this movie got weirdly derailed because Billy Wilder kind of wanted to stick his thumb in the eye of the Hays Code. And like, I get it. (laughs) I would too. But it made a worse movie, my man. You know what's interesting about 1941? I've looked at some of the movies that came out in 1941 because I was thinking how dull this year is other than Citizen Kane. And I I mean, we haven't gotten to the Maltese Falcon yet. And I know that that's going to be a great film, even though I haven't seen it because because I know I just know. Okay, (laughs) but there were some really good films that came out in 1941. All of them are big, flashy Hollywood musicals. And it feels like we are at a point in the Academy's roller coaster relationship with big flashy musicals where they're not considered serious enough because you have Zigfield Girl with Jimmy Stewart, Judy Garland, Lana Turner, Jackie Cooper, and Busby Berkeley choreography, which four years before, if this movie had come out, would absolutely have been nominated. And frankly, I really miss that. Yeah. You've also got Babes on Broadway, which is Mickey Rudy and Judy Garland with Busby Berkeley. There's some good quality just entertainment in this year that we're not given in the nominees. I think really because you have stuff like The Grapes of Wrath and The Great Dictator and Mr. Smith Goes to Washington that have all come out in the couple of years preceding it. I don't quite know exactly why we've taken that turn, but yeah, Hollywood has really gone all in on important movies this year. In quotes, you know? I think the only thing that you wouldn't really classify as an Oscar bait movie here. I've never seen Blossoms in the Dust. Yeah, you have. I have? Yeah, that's the movie about not making kids be... Oh, right. Shit. I haven't seen How Green Was My Valley. That's what I meant. But also, from that poster, I cannot imagine it is not a self-important movie about the working class or something. Or the land. Right. I'm sure that's being dismissive, and it might be a really, really good example of that. But everything here is Oscar bait, except for Maltese Falcon. Even Citizen Kane is Oscar bait. It should just win Oscars because it's fucking Citizen Kane. Yeah, I mean, sometimes bait is bait because it's delicious, not just because it's wriggled in front of you. Okay, I guess here comes Mr. Jordan is an Oscar bait, but it's also inexplicable it got nominated. Yeah, that's true. (laughs) I do not understand... Clearly, the Academy thought it was an important movie for reasons that my brain cannot even begin to go down that logical road. I I mean, the only thing that I can think of is that you could say that it tangentially deals with questions of life and death. 
but not in any way that is serious. Right, and like every time it provides an answer, that answer doesn't hold up to even momentary scrutiny. Or even momentarily to the rules of the universe of the movie. Right. Uh, anyway, <laughs> welcome to our episode about Old Back the Dawn, <laughs> aka- Here comes Mr. Jordan 2. Here comes Mr. Jordan still sucks. <laughs> The only thing I want to talk about that we haven't talked about for Hold Back the Dawn, not Here Comes Mr. Jordan, is how weird it is to see immigration and customs and border control in a movie comparing it to what it is like today. Yeah. How very congenial and not at all terrifying it is. Well, that's the thing is at the first act of this movie... It kind of is a terrifying Brazil-style bureaucracy, right? Like, and not the country, the film. <laughs> In the first act, when Charles Boyer initially meets Olivia de Havilland, they have this contentious relationship because she's in America and America's been fucking obfuscating dicks to him. <laughs> like, the entire country is just middlemen telling him he has to wait years at a time for stupid reasons. Yeah, he has to wait eight years to get on the quota list because Romania has, that's where they are. Which, I mean, those lists actually really do exist. And eight years at this point in history is actually quite short, though I don't know that Romania is on the quota list anymore. That is kind of fascinating. And then in Act 2, the immigration guy kind of becomes a Javert-like figure who's just obsessed with getting these scammers, even if they have some underlying understandable reason for wanting to get into the U.S. and thinking the system is unfair, his job is to not let them cheat the unfair system. But then by the end, everybody's just buddy-buddy, and it's like, yeah, man, you put one over on us, you had your kid on the U.S. side of the border, so we're all friends now. Well, that's the thing that's super weird to me is that the Austrian woman who is pregnant just goes to the border, which is a chain link fence. There's no razor wire. I don't even know that the customs officials have guns or if they do, they're like sidearms like a cop, like a beat cop. Yeah. And says, oh, I'm supposed to have a meeting with whoever the director of Border Patrol is. And they go, oh, yeah, sure, sure. Just walk over to the U.S. and go into his office clearly in labor woman yeah and then the kid is born and he goes into the office and sees the kid and all of the other agents are like oh well, should we take her back over and he says no don't you dare that kid is a u.s citizen and i'm thinking i don't think this would work this way in 2019 uh, for sure not at all yeah even if someone did manage to get over and immediately have a child pretty sure that the border patrol agents would not be fine with it i'm pretty sure they would figure out they could lie yeah there's <laughs> this thing where he is immediately like ah, oh, well you know fair's fair you got us and like, no, <laughs> the entire point of the first act is fair isn't fair, that this system isn't fair because it's impossible for this system to be fair. And then by the end, he's clapping along while Charles Boyer and Olivia de Havilland run at the border together. And like, no, <laughs> no. Yeah. Even in 41, I think no. I mean, certainly no now, because Jesus fucking Christ. But even in 41, I think that's kind of a Pollyanna-ish view of what's going on there. 
the story of her sneaking over the border and having her baby on the U.S. side of the border, the story of the guy who figures out he has U.S. ancestry that lets him be an honorary American citizen, all of that stuff feels like if it was given room to breathe... There's a full movie here about examining the absurdities of the immigration system. Right. And just sort of watching all of these people stuck in this town, living this weird liminal life waiting to get into the U.S. Instead, it's like, oh, let's rush and do all that fun stuff in like 15 minutes so that we can get back to Charles Boyer and Olivia de Havilland making goo-goo eyes at each other. Yeah. And like, why? I don't like it. Five. Five out of ten. Yeah, it's a five. And don't watch it. Especially because it's very hard to watch. In terms of it's hard to find. Yeah. So even if you really wanted to prove us wrong, good luck. It's not amazing. And I feel bad for our listeners that we've had so many short episodes. Uh, Or maybe that's a blessing. Yeah. And this one could be worse. I think we're breaking 30 this time, and that's some. Yeah, we just might. For... Reviewing Here Comes Mr. Jordan a second time. (laughs) Yeah. What if we just, I mean, (laughs) Christ, looking at this poster, here's the thing. We've talked about good posters and bad posters. I don't think we've ever seen a poster as much as the one for next week's movie, One Foot in Heaven, that so thoroughly is like, this movie will be boring. Or super creepy. I mean, either one of those people is a serial killer. And in 1941, I don't think they are. Yeah. But either one of the people in this leave-it-to-beaver-ass family photo of a poster wears women's skin as a suit. (laughs) Gross. Or this movie is going to be boring as hell. It really does just scream inoffensive. It's the film poster equivalent of oatmeal. Yeah. Unflavored, unsugared, unbuttered oatmeal. Here's what it is. So everyone involved in this, for those of you who don't look at the Wikipedia page whenever I talk about the poster, first of all, you're doing the podcast wrong. Just stop driving right now, pull over wherever you are, pull out your phone, go to the Wikipedia page for next week's movie. But also, if you can't do that, This poster is just all of the lead actors of the movie One Foot in Heaven in, like, a family portrait looking directly at the camera on a yellow background that is itself framed by blue with the names of the male and female lead and the name of the movie at the top and bottom. And to make that poster, you need all of the actors, so that's five people. You need a costume department to dress those actors— Eh, let's say that's two or three other people for a very small photo shoot for doing hair and makeup and clothes. You need a photographer. You need a graphic designer who lays out the poster and somebody to approve it. So I think we're looking at easily a dozen people. And every single one of those dozen people went, eh, good enough after their first try. <laughs> And went to lunch. I've honestly seen family Christmas cards (laughs) that way more thought about design was put into this than this poster. Way more. It's not a good poster, but it's also so bland as to not even be a bad poster. 
it's just boring. <laughs> but the movie does star Frederick March, and we haven't seen him in a while, so yeah, I'm excited to have him back on the podcast. I do, however, want to state that I feel like it is a direct insult to me from God and history that this movie was released October 2nd and Maltese Falcon was released October 3rd. Well, <laughs> that's just how the podcast works, David. <laughs> I I know, but usually it's like, oh, there's a week or two between them. And just like, ugh, just one day. Just, mm, can one of you have, like, pushed to Friday? Can, like, <laughs> just, just, ooh, so close. Well, it does mean that in two weeks you get Maltese Falcon, so. Very true. Uh, and until then. This was, this was a five. Th- this was a five. Yeah. I don't have anything else to say about it. I've exhausted all possible descriptions of this film. This movie is almost so aggressively a five. I almost want to take the time out of my life to read the novel just to know, you know, (laughs) just to feel something, even though I think the novel would be like wildly boring and a waste of my time. Almost certainly. Anyway, (laughs) bye, everybody. Goodbye. What does that mean? Goodbye, good luck, we've had our fun, you go your way, I'll go mine. Don't try and sell me that routine, Jeff. I wish I could think up a better ending, but I can't.